Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Apollo. We're coming to you on 88.3 WLIW-FM. You can also stream us online at WLIW.org slash radio. And we have just a hell of a guest today, don't we, Sock? Yeah, yeah, really excited to uh, have this conversation. And we go way, way back. Our, our guest today is Jenny Lumet, who did grow up uh, on the East End of Long Island in East Hampton, and who's been... A well, friend no, of mine let's since forever. Split time between the city and East, End, yeah. right? I mean, that's and well, so, so did like, we all. No, I'm saying, but just so cast a shadow from a very young age. Family would come out. She had a lot of emotional experience, memories, everything growing up, but kind okay. of toggled back and forth from Manhattan <laughs> and yeah. East Hampton. Yes, yeah, well, as we all did. Uh, yeah. I mean, all of us, meaning you, me, and and Jenny. But, um, you know, Jenny comes from an illustrious Hollywood background. So do you. Oh, my God. I also want everybody on this broadcast to know that I've seen Bridget Leroy in hot pants. <laughs> that never happened. It totally did. You and Emma danced to superstition in hot pants. Like Daisy Dukes or like? Yes. What Whatever the year superstition came out. Um, <laughs> wonder superstition. I went over there. I can't remember who's, where, which house it was, but Emma... And Bridget were in hot pants dancing to Superstition. And did, did you have bell bottoms and drive your banana bicycle? I still have bell bottoms and I still have a banana bicycle, young man. But um, I'm, I'm way too aged to pedal it. Oh my God, I can't believe that this is going to be on the air. But anyway, we're, we're talking with Jenny Lumet. Jenny Lumet. <laughs> is a writer you know i want to let you know you're a writer and a producer and has done star trek discovery it was you know rachel getting married with jonathan demi and and anna hathaway but you know i got to tell you jenny when you go on wikipedia it still lists you as jenny lumet american actress i know that's weird i know right but i don't know who's in charge of wiki i would like it to say jenny lumet american like cranky person <laughs> Um, But Jenny, also, I mean, growing up, um, your parents were Sydney and Gail, uh, Gail Buckley, but Sydney Lumet is your dad. Lena Horn is your grandmother. And let's let's give some let's give some love to the other side of your family. Baruch Lumet Mm -hmm. was your grandfather. No, I want to actually start with that because you are biracial, you are female and you are Jewish and cranky. Mm -hmm. And cranky. <laughs> I heard. You said you're cranky. Yes. Um, you had a chance to meet your grandfather. And I just think like, I mean, your father was like Uncle Sidney to me, but I never met your grandfather. What was he like? I mean, he was a famous Jewish actor, wasn't he? I mean, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about him. Well, what I've discovered is that I'm actually fourth generation showbiz and Jacob, my son, is fifth generation showbiz. And on I know on my mom's side that we've actually been doing this since the reconstruction. Are you serious? I'm totally serious. I'm it's completely alarming. On my dad's side, it's harder before Baruch, the you know, there's all this uh, everybody was sort of everybody was slain by Nazis. So it was, it's hard. There's a huge gap. But we did find 
I did trace the family back to Isaac Abavrenel, who was <laughs> indeed a famous Jewish philosopher. I don't know if he did stand-up philosophy, but there you go, in the 1500s. So it's like we've been doing this a real, I know it's amazing, a really long time. Back to Baruch. Um, I only met Baruch twice. He was lovely. I don't know how well he and Sydney got along, so I don't know him that well. I know him only from a couple of movie clips and uh, reading about him a little bit. He was a, uh, yeah, an actor in the Yiddish theater. He was an actor in the Yiddish theater. And I think he was in a, he had a couple of small parts in sort of Woody Allen movies. And I think dad might have given him a part in one movie. Well, I remember seeing some silent movie like at your house where it was your dad was like a child actor and it was like a building was on fire and he had to jump off the roof. Does that ring a bell? And wasn't Baruch? Oh, yeah. No, that's um, one third of a nation. One but I don't think Baruch was in that movie. Sylvia Sidney was in the movie and dad played a kid in the tenement and the tenement killed him in the end. That's right. Yes, yeah, so he was trying to escape the tenement with his baseball gear. Let's talk about you, though, because I'm, I'm more interested in the here and now, uh, just personally. Don't worry, um, I'll keep jumping back to the past. Yeah, no, like, so you grow up in this household where the dinner table conversation is, is in the arts and in culture. At what point did you start personally reaching for expressions and storytelling? Well, the dinner table conversation was mostly about dinner. It was about, like, pass me that. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it's still, uh, you know, you can't escape. It's like you can't escape where you were. No, Bridgie, but I think would say the same. I mean, I think I'd say the same for, for everybody on this call. It seems like that's how it's a family business. Yeah. And it's a family business for generations. And that's right. kind of what you talk about. It, it didn't seem special. It seemed like this is what we were yelling about today. It seemed like a completely comfortable place. It was, there wasn't really a decision. There was only, there would have been a decision to not be in the place. Do you remember how old you were when you started coming out to the East End? Um, oh, it was before I was born. I mean, my dad bought the house that we have now, I think the year before my sister was born. So that was 1960. She was born 64. So that would be probably 63 or 62. And I was born in 67. Like how much of your formative years were you out here? Like I, I could tell you, like Every summer. Yeah, was, we were summers, and we would we do winter uh, holidays and, and weekends and stuff. But um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the summers are really what defines. Well, she remembers me in hot pants dancing to superstition. That's all that matters. Right? That's all that matters. <laughs> I just remember you. I remember us all being over at the at Sydney's house and just. Just, you know, hanging out and just what a wonderful atmosphere it was. And there was always someone very interesting, especially when The Wiz was being filmed and, you know, just people being around. It may not have seemed magical at the time, but I guess we were really blessed to have this kind of like magical showbiz background. And it obviously rubbed off on you. So you started out in the and I mean, besides the, the magazine work you were doing and stuff, you and you started out as an actress, but very quickly yeah. morphed into a writer. So tell me about yeah. that journey and how that process worked. Well, being an actress, you're not allowed to eat any food. And you also like <laughs> daily sample these mother loads of contempt because people are very, very, people are not kind to actresses. It's a very tough job. And I also wasn't that good of an actress. I was a pretty lousy actress. I had very quickly understood that if I wasn't nearly good enough to devote my life to it. I love, love, love good acting. I yeah. just can't do it. And that was a great thing to learn fast, to know that you're just, you can love it, but you're just not your thing, not your gift. 
I think I wrote the first thing. I think I was pregnant with Jacob, um, who is now 25. And pregnancy is a very powerful time. And this is your son, Jake Cannavale, right? This is my son, Jake Cannavale, um, who's very, who's single, ladies. He's very cute. <laughs> he sure is. He's adorable. He's super cute, you know. And I think it was during his during that pregnancy. God, was, that was so long ago. But it didn't. There doesn't seem like a time where there wasn't a creative thing happening in one way or the or another. Because that's when you say that's what it was. That's what it was. It wasn't a funny. It wasn't a decision to go in a certain direction. It was like, well, okay, what's today? It felt like that. If that makes any sense. Let's go to like Rachel getting married. Is that, mm -hmm. was that what you were writing when you were pregnant? Not with Jacob. Rachel getting married, I wrote in, I think, 2006 or 2007, because I remember it came out in 2008. Oh, yeah. So that's a while ago. I mean, that's more recent. Yeah. Like, uh, so I found out that I was pregnant with Sasha the first day of the table read. The actors started acting, and then I went and threw up into the, Garbage. <laughs> it's the actors that throw up. Yeah. <laughs> no, they were not happy. But you were like giving birth and giving birth. I mean, you're like your your yeah. creation seemed to be going like like syzygistically aligning. You know, both with your mind and your womb at the same time. I mean, that's you said syzygistically. That's very fancy. You have to put your hot pants on immediately, young lady. <laughs> Play superstition, and I'll I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> I'm still a Stevie Wonder fanatic, by the way. Me too. So you, you know, can I just say a thing yeah. though? I was playing superstition for my daughter, and she was 12, and she goes, "Oh, I know this song." And I was like, "You do?" She goes, "Yeah, it's from the 1900s." Oh and I was God. like, "You are grounded forever." You're grounded oh forever. How could you? Forever. Um, oh my so let's but let's jump to Rachel getting married because we're, we're talking now about like your first real taste of take it from me, Bridget Leroy, of, of like, you know, the first time where you are not Jenny, daughter of Sidney Lumet and granddaughter yeah. of Horn, where, where suddenly you're Jenny Lumet. Like I'm at the Oscars. I'm you know what I mean? I have this film that Jonathan Demme. What was it like when you got the call that Jonathan Demme was going to be like doing your script? Well, it didn't work like that. It worked. He called me up. And it's like, you don't believe it's him. And you do the thing of like, yeah, 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 f you hang, you know, and hang up. And then he calls back. I mean, that actually happened. Oh, my God, Jenny. I know. I know. Um, and then we worked. He said, I don't want to make this movie, but I'd love to just like talk about it and work on it with you. And I said, OK, like that, <laughs> you know, like yeah, he's just such an extraordinary human. And um, uh, you have to be a little bit of a sociopath, I think, in in show business, mm -hmm. um, which means that I guess I'm a fourth generation sociopath. Um, <laughs> and I was like, okay, how can I, he doesn't want to direct this movie, but he's attracted to it. So how can I get him to do, how can I, what can I do to sort of make without pushing, without seeming like I'm pushing him to do it, to get him to do it. And I knew that he loved animals and he was going to be a vet, a vet, but he couldn't figure out the math. And then he went, he went into, and I knew he had this, into the arts. And I knew he had this dog named Olive, a poodle. Mm -hmm. So um, he lived um, out of the city and I took Metro North to his house. And we were going to work on the script. Mm -hmm. And his dog, Olive, was standing on the porch. And as I opened the gates to his little lawn, Olive came bounding down and she's going... <laughs> 
And she's sniffing me and she's sniffing me and she's like loving me and loving me and loving me. And Jonathan goes, she doesn't usually take to people. And I had bacon in the pockets of my jeans. You did not. I totally did. And this very day, I will never deny it. And I totally did. And I was like, I don't know. I guess she must dislike me. I certainly have been asked many times, and I'm sure you, you have and, and will continue to be by emerging writers, what can you do to make it in show business? And Bacon. I, I, bacon. Put bacon in your pockets is awesome. Yeah. Let me start using that advice. That's genius. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. And then totally. and three Jews here talking about bacon. I'm talking about bacon. And I... So, you know, we had this and Olive was loving me and she loved me the whole day because I was, I was bacony. And um, <laughs> then so at good. the end of it, because my mother, who you know, Bridget, yeah. yes. would make, makes people write thank you notes all the time. Oh God. Yeah. I had that too. Yeah. Growing yep. up. So I wrote a thank you note, but I did not write the thank you note to Jonathan. I wrote it to Olive, the poodle, and I wrote her a sonnet and a haiku. Oh, there you go. That there is, you go. And then John called so me. Brilliantly manipulative. I, I bow. I bow to your totally. business. That is incredible. But what a great way. And listen, it, it was a great movie. So it all worked out very well for everybody. And Olive can't even read. No. But what's <laughs> <laughs> wrong with her? But but here's here's the thing that kind of is like circuitous and wonderful is that now you're working on Clarice. Yeah. And that, you know, I mean, of course, Thomas Harris wrote the book, but Jonathan Demme is known as as directing the film. Yeah. The Lambs. And now how did you come up with this idea? I know you have a writing partner as well, but what drew you to that? Did it have to do with your relationship with Jonathan or just because the character of Clarice Starling is just so fascinating? The character of Clarice Starling is so, is so fascinating. And it, I mean, it's wonderful to have, to be listed as the creator on three shows. It's wonderful. And it feels really amazing. What are the three shows? It's Star Trek. Oh, it's a, no, I'm an EP on Star Trek Discovery. I am not a creator. Um, I'm a creator of Clarice. Um, I'm a creator on a show called, which is based on a movie that I'm sure that you, Bridget, are familiar with called Mm -hmm. The Man Who Fell to Earth with David Bowie. I was there when Nick Rogue was directing it. I would have stories that are not suitable for the radio, but I'll tell you some other time. Yeah. So oh my God. Um, Earth, um, Clarice, and what's the third one? The third one is uh, Strange New World, which is the new, the newest Star Trek iteration. And I'm a co-creator. Kiva Goldsman wrote the wrote the pilot, and I helped out with the pilot. So I mean, Akiva's it's Akiva's baby, but I'm a co-creator on it. It's really cool. It's a lot of work. It's very hard work. Clarice, um, which is a network show for CBS, which it's like, it's so cool. I mean, it occurred to me, my writing partner is a guy called Alex Kurtzman, who's a pretty extraordinary and very prolific guy. Right. Kurtzman, Orchie, they also were part of, I mean, they did the Star Trek thing. They're, they cast such yeah. a shadow in, uh, in TV, you know? Yes. Yeah. And uh, Kurtzman and Orsi are no longer uh, partners. Oh, didn't know that. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they, that partnership ended a while ago, and, and Alex and I write together, um, which is how I got involved in Star Trek, so I was never a Trek person. And now I am. We're going to take a really short break. We want to come back and talk about your current projects and, mm-hmm. um, and some other stuff. So you're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Hoffman. And our guest, Jenny Lumet. And we're going to take a short break. You're listening to us on WLIW, and we'll be right back. 
welcome back. Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Lockwood. And our guest, Jenny Lumet, East Ender kind of Manhattanite and writer, fellow showbiz person. And we're talking about all of your different projects that you have going on. But we just, uh, during the break, we're talking about Santa Monica, because Alec lived there. That's where you are right now. I am in Santa Monica. As I said before, it's like living in Nancy Meyers' kitchen. It's really, really pretty. Like, it's pretty all the time, right. all the time. Even in COVID, it's pretty in Santa Monica. Um, it's making me a little bit nuts. You're probably in Brentwood, right? I mean, you're in, like, the north part. I would no, I'm in, um, I'm on right by Montana on 17th. Oh, awesome, yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I lived in Dogtown. I was in, like, the, the, the crap of Santa Monica, the last, like, square inch before Venice. And in a very funky neighborhood, that's where I raised my kids. And um, I thought Santa Monica was like, um, I, I don't even know how to say it. It was sunny, a sunny place for shady people. Something like that. Yeah. yeah I mean, some people are completely lovely. And I've only been here a year because I came out here for work. I don't want to diss my community. Yeah. Um, it's got a funny disconnect. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. And in the, in the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, I know my, my ex is, uh, is on 11th off of Montana, and uh, she was just talking about the, the presence of the protest uh, in the last couple of weeks after the George Floyd murder. And that was definitely different. I, I don't know if you were out there in 92. but Yeah, no, no. I was there. Um, I marched on the, that Sunday. My arm of the march didn't go across ocean to the uh to the promenades. I wasn't where uh, the destruction was. Right. But that's quite different. I mean, that's quite different in this moment. I, I know that in 92, I felt like I was watching it on TV like everybody else. And, and from what I've heard at, at this moment, uh, the protests and the people in the street uh, are in the, the tonier areas of Los Angeles as well. Which was, well, I think that was the point, is my understanding is that was the point because, I mean, I think what we're seeing now is the result of years of organizing. This isn't, I don't think this is a haphazard plan. This is not a haphazard strategy. The idea, my understanding, okay, and I, I do not speak for those who are smarter than me, was have it in the neighborhoods where you don't normally have protests. No, it's kind of a brilliant, uh, brilliant. strategy. Yeah. Brilliant. While we're on that subject, I mean, let's talk about what you were taught. I mean, you're biracial. Your grandmother is Lena Horn. What story mm -hmm. did Lena, I mean, or, or, and you said it goes all the way back to the reconstruction. What stories from your black ancestors, what stories have been passed down to you? We didn't, grandma mostly, she had a very complicated life and a very, yeah. Um, so she didn't, when she was home, she just talked, it was just home. It was just grandma and it was just family. And it was just, you know, we watching movies and giggling and, and being, I mean, it wasn't the great, very interesting, very colorful, very heartbreaking, all those stories. I didn't learn till much, much later when in adulthood, because it's not the kind of stuff that you, for her chose to share with her. She said, you know, and I've, I've told this story on the air before, but it was before we switched to WLIW. So I'll, I'll tell it again, which is I remember during the filming of The Wiz when we were all like at least teenagers. So maybe eligible 
have like more deep discussions. And I remember Lena, because I, God, I loved your grandmother so much. I wrote her letters for years, you know, to- She smelled good. Oh, (laughs) she was just wonderful in every way. And I remember her telling me that when she was uh, under contract at MGM, that Mm -hmm. um, she would often like be doing some huge film where she was the star and go to the commissary and no one would sit with her. Except my grandfather, Mervyn. Mervyn LaRoy yeah. sit with her. So I love that you and I, even before we were, you know, the twinkle in anybody's eye, we have that connection that our grandparents were sitting together at MGM. And I love that. I love that too. I love that too. Um, I also remember you dancing with Michael Jackson at Studio 54 at the premiere of The Wiz. I was 11. I know I was. I, and thank you for you know validating that. I actually have a picture of us together at Studio 54. Totally. And I know that you wouldn't say that, but everybody on the East End needs to know that, a, that freaking Bridget danced with Michael Jackson at Studio 54 when we were like some ridiculous age. Like I was 11, so you were like 13 or 15. And our parents should have been arrested, but it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, so tell me what it's like now. You're out there and you're working on three different projects. How do you keep it straight? I can't even keep like breakfast, lunch, and dinner straight. I don't know. I don't know if I'm actually doing it. So I'm hoping for the best. I am doing it in the sense that they're all going. Yeah. I'm just, nothing has come to a insane crashing well, actually, no, the world is sort of insane. The change that's happening was supposed to happen, I think, and long overdue. And I'm, it's, excru- it's excruciatingly painful, so I don't mean to be flip about it at all. Well, what's going on and how are you even filming? Are they filming, Clarice? No, 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 not yet. Not yet. Um, there's protocols in place. As far as I know, end of summer. And, my, and as far as I assume... It's going to, there's going to be a whole sort of, uh, I'm, I'm going to say trial and error. Uh, doesn't, that doesn't necessarily give it the weight that it deserves, but they're going to try to figure out a way to film safely and do, produ- you know what production is and have, and then I'm sure it'll be one step forward, two steps back for a little while. Well, this is, this is going to be on CBS at some point in the future. What's the elevator pitch for Clarice? Oh, well, um, I was fascinated by her because everyone was very very into Lecter who's a delicious character but he's also a sad old murderer who ate people and the one who actually won everything was Clarice Starling except nobody was that interested in her for a while oh and that's not true the people who were interested in her were always interested in her but uh, she wasn't on screen right and there were seven years between Silence of the Lambs and uh, Hannibal uh huh and those seven years, what did she do? What was she, she had just, I mean, at the end of Silence of the Lambs, Clarice graduated from the FBI. Right. So you have a seven-year stretch of one of the greatest heroines in American fiction. And what was her life about? What kind of trauma exists after you have an experience like an ex- that experience that she had with Buffalo Bill at a very young age. How did she grow up? Mm-hmm. What was her childhood life like in West Virginia? I mean, it seems in the movie, it seems very sunny, but we get this tiny little glimpse. In the book, it's not so sunny. Right. There's a lot of stuff there to unpack. And she's an FBI agent now. What skills, and it's 1992, where they were, when there were, I think, 3,000 female employees 
in the FBI, which had 30,000 people in wow. it. So there's no HR, there's no language that we have now. You have this one girl from West Virginia in this very particular world in the 19, and also in the world of 1992, Washington. You've got Clinton, you've got Janet Reno. I mean, there's a whole, there's got Waco. There's a whole bunch of stuff in Ruby Ridge. There's a whole bunch of stuff that this particular woman who's been, had this particular life and been through these particular traumas is now thrown into the mix of, and it's really cool. I hear you talking and, and the writer in me is, is like thinking, so in your mind, what, what is the series about? What's the gestalt or what's the, the psychological subtextual thing that you're really reaching for? Is it, uh, like you're saying, not really about the cases, but really about being a, a female FBI agent in the early 90s? Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And with her own, everybody brings their own psychological map. Mm -hmm. And Clarice's has always been special. And we know it's been special because she defeated Hannibal Lecter in the sense that he he is the only one that she brought him back to life. Mm -hmm. And she defeated Buffalo Bill and saved somebody. I've never seen a movie where a woman saves another woman. That was the first movie where I saw where a woman saved another woman. Meaning that that woman has a particular psychological makeup. You didn't see the director's cut of All About Eve? <laughs> oh, my God. Stop it. I'd kiss you, but I just washed my hair. I love that so much. So much. And as far as rounding out, like, I know I always approach uh, my writing from the inside out, hopefully, you know, characters and stuff. What did you get from Clarice before you dug in? And, and what have you brought to her as a character that, that you're really finding in the discovery of of your writing. There is so much in Silence of the Lambs. Um, I mean, I'm a huge Thomas Harris fan, and I actually wrote him some emails, and I got one back, and I sort of printed it and framed it because he's him. Um, Yeah. Yeah, he's kind of amazing. Bacon in your pocket for him also? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Um, uh, There is so much that's not in the book, and there is so much – there are also tiny little tidbits in the book that oh, that make you think, well, what about, I don't understand, well, what about the rest of it? Mm-hmm. Why doesn't Clarice talk about her family? There are tiny little moments, the moments of her mother washing the blood out of her father's cap at the sink. Well, what, what was the rest of that day like? Right. What happened around her father's death? I'm also a huge fan of that book, so I remember that. And yeah, there are unanswered questions. So many unanswered questions. And uh, Mr. Harris was quite generous in talking about, in giving us leave to talk about Clarice's family. Mm. She had siblings um, because her mom says, get your brothers and sisters and bring them to the table. Who are they? Where are they? It makes it sound like she's Um, the oldest child if she's in. Yes. Well, she got sent away because her mom couldn't afford her. What does that mean? Right. Where's what is the rest of her siblings been up to? And what's her sense of justice? Like why? Why? Uh, why? Yeah. Why did she yeah. end up in the FBI? I mean, her father was a lawman, but not really a lawman. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lecter sort of drove that point home with her. Um, my feeling is that Clarice is a better lawman than her father. 
which is a really interesting thing for a young woman to reckon with. And perhaps her sense of justice came out of her father's murder or um, perhaps her sense of justice and on Clarice's timeline in Kanawha County in West Virginia, she would have been about the fictional Clarice. Um, if she were real, if she were a real girl, she would have been eight years old at a time where there was a big upheaval about book burning in Kanawha County, West Virginia, and what books children could read and what books they couldn't. Wow. Um, and she would have been Clarice would have been eight, and maybe that's the thing that informed her sense of justice. Do you see yourself in this character? Do you put your, like, what, what are you pulling from yourself? Um, she, well, she's certainly braver than me. She is relentlessly curious. Um, I'm a curious person. I think human beings, God bless them, will see the thing that they want desperately and then run completely in the opposite direction as fast as possible. <laughs> Jenny, you are clearly informed. I mean, being being thrust into Hollywood, you've been your time out there. You've been informed by a sense of justice all along because of the kind of diversity you've been able to bring to shows like Star Trek Discovery. I mean, you you received a freaking NAACP Image Award. That was for Rachel getting married. Oh, was that for Rachel getting married? That's that's just amazing. Mm-hmm. Still, I mean, okay. but but I know that uh, Star Trek Discovery has been uh, shortlisted yeah. as being a show that's known for its incredible diversity. And to me, diversity just sounds like fairness. So you're bringing that part of you to Clarice, perhaps to that sense of yeah, fairness but I, and justice. I, I'm also here, and I, and I I don't forgive me if I'm making a leap here. So Clarice had this father that was a lawman, and she went into law. You have a father that was a director and a filmmaker, and you went into film. Are you pulling it all from that relationship? I never think it's that simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, her family there's like the family uh it's like you have a library inside you and sometimes you don't know what all the books are mm-hmm. so i'm sure that there's dad stuff in there right but for this particular thing i'm more interested in a woman who has to explore her own past right not not through the men in her life it's her yeah i mean i there's always dad stuff there's always mom stuff like we mm-hmm. all have what does thomas harris say the memory palace and you have rooms upon rooms upon rooms, and you never quite know what's going to come flying out of the, the door that you that you open that that day. I'm not counting anything out. I it would just be so. I wish I could say this is about this because that would make it so much easier. <laughs> but no, but it's great that you no. don't know. I mean, it's, you're in the great unexplored. I mean, that's what yeah. that's the best place for a writer to be. I think. That sounds like another place for a good break. What do you think? Absolutely. You're Always listening. A good time for a good break. Always a good time for food. Bacon. <laughs> Bacon. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Stockwell. And our guest, Jenny Lumet. You're listening to us on WLIW 88.3 FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online at WLIW.org slash radio. And we're going to be right back after this. We're back Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy and Alex 
And our guest, Jenny Lumet, who did spend a lot of your childhood out here in East Hampton, but now you're out in California doing all kinds of, you know, fulfilling your destiny. Sorry. Right? <laughs> I mean, geez, we can't avoid it. But besides, okay, so we've been talking about Clarice and your journey with that, but you have other projects and other passions and your children. And yeah. this is such a weird time right now. And you're at the intersection of so many enormous upright. Now this, this show is airing on July 5th. It was Independence Day yesterday. And there's just so much going on in the world. Black Lives Matter movement is gaining traction. Me Too is still around. There's, there's just been so much. I mean, what do, you, what do you teach your kids? What do you tell your kids about this time right now? Well, I tr do my best not to tell them stuff. I try to ask them stuff. I mean, Jacob is 25, um, so the conversations are different. Sasha's 12. She has one foot in that 12-year-old, it's all about her and her friends, and then another foot in, well, the world seems interesting. I mean, she doesn't have the perspective because she's 12. It never occurred to her that there couldn't be a Black president. When she was a baby, she got confused and would refer to him as President O Pancakes. <laughs> I remember making, I made her a lot of. She would say, "Is President O Pancakes still president?" I said, "Yes." Um, well, she got bacon for you. You're a breakfast person, aren't you? I'm a total breakfast person. Okay. Um, it's. I don't know. It seems like a really necessary time. I hope that it lasts through November. I hope that I don't know if I'm wise enough to to speak about whatever is inside people now. I mean, you. it seems what's just what then speak for yourself. Like what's inside you? Mostly anger. It's mostly anger. And even in, you know, anger in the new wokeness um, makes me bananas. Uh, I'm happy for it. Anger, anger at the people who are just showing up to the dance of anger or anger Pretty much. I mean, I, you know, I'm, look, I'm grateful for all who are, who strive and make steps. And I have a million, I mean, I have so far to go within myself in terms of understanding stuff, you know, just because I have a black family. I also have a Jewish family. Yeah. Uh, does not mean that I know all the stuff. I existed between Manhattan and East Hampton. That's a very particular black experience. But I'm glad that those who are interested are interested. And I vacillate between very being very pissed off um, at the, some of the performative aspects and grateful for all of it. Um, because at least some, it's some kind of motion and movement. But again, this is the result of years and years and years and years. I think of, of organizers planning stuff. Why was George Floyd the catalyst? because we had a pandemic and everyone was home. So there was no escaping. Uh, in that moment, there was no escaping history. Obviously, this has been going on for years and years and years and years and years. But the big difference also is that now people have cell phone cameras. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a lot harder for anybody, whether it's a, a policeman, you know, and of course, not all cops are bad. And that's not what Black Lives Matter is about. And that's the part that drives me bananas is that when people think it's it's that if you take a stand for that, that you're against something else. That's not what it is. As far as I'm and I don't know, I'm not black. 
I want to go back to your anger and this, not to turn this into a therapy session, but like I, one, one of the gestalts that I've been chewing on is, and, and, you know, I've mentioned this before is, is I think that there are basically four narratives in the American civilization. There's the original people's narrative. There's the uh, traffic people's narrative. There's the colonialist narrative and there's the immigrant narrative. And since America is a country that celebrates immigrants and I identify as an immigrant, I think that a lot of, uh, you know, you can call it white people, you say whatever, but like immigrant culture is you, America represents a better place, a new opportunity, and really a place where you assimilate that part of being American is the process of becoming American. And in moments like this, I think that that huge part of the population, myself included, doesn't know how to assimilate to this moment naturally. So there might be some overcompensation. There might be some kind of like appropriation. There might be all of this, but it's really, for me, broadly, when I look at it, it's an attempt to say, where do I fit into this conversation by a huge percentage of the population? And the, the natural logical place I net out at is... You just need to kind of listen. I need to listen. You need to kind of yeah. not not stop listening and let a new narrative be written that you can then assimilate to. Yeah, I think that's very wise. Yeah. I think that's very wise. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I hear your anger and I, I get it. And and I'm, I'm as good. I, you know, my, my kids went to a nice progressive school in Santa Monica and uh, it turned me more right wing than anything because I couldn't stand the limousine liberal culture that we were. And that's really something I, I rage against uh, in my writing in, in subversive ways, because it's worse to think that you uh, are woke in some way and all you really are are uh, a play actor. I'm kind of a limousine liberal myself in the sense that, you know, we grew up with all this money. Um, so there's an area of privilege that I exist in. Um, it's a weird little subset of black people with, with who grew up from my generation, Mm -hmm. um, who had proximity to whiteness, proximity to cash and all the things that that meant like healthcare and all that kind of stuff and proximity to celebrity, which also makes it a totally different thing. And then there's also this, there's so many levels to this i mean we haven't gotten to the colorism question which is a whole other question well do you want to want to uh, kind of extrapolate on that a a little bit you know that's many 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 shows and there are people who can speak to it a lot more articulately than i can um for anybody who isn't familiar with the term it just means the lighter skinned you are it's easier and it's been that way since 1619. I'm actually, I'm, I'm reading, uh, I mean, jumping to another country, I'm reading Trevor Noah's biography, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Born a Crime. And so good, right? Oh, and he awesome. spoke about that so beautifully. Yeah, and really about the coloreds. And I'm using that word because that was the word. There were black people, there were coloreds, which is what he mm-hmm. being biracial, you know, multi-ethnic. Yeah. Um, and, and it all had to do like, and this even had something like before apartheid, like if you're good enough and you keep like working on being white, you could actually like level up. Yeah, (laughs) like they would literally like change your your papers, you know, so that you were white. And then if you did something wrong, like if you married someone who was dark, then you got your papers taken away and you were considered colored or even black. I mean, it's just so weird, you know. Well, and and even Arthur Ashe in '72, when when uh, the Davis Cup was going to South Africa, 
refused to go uh, unless the stadium was integrated and uh, was told he was going to be giving temporary white status. Um, wow. And, and, no, I know. And, and, so and weird. Uh, part of his uh, journey as a, a statesman, as, as a world citizen, is he, he actually got that government to bend to his requirements because he was that good a tennis player. That's amazing. I had no idea that story. Thank you. That's a wonderful story. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing to know. Well, we're kind of coming to the, you know, last five minutes of the program. Let's talk about some of the good, like, memories that you have of being out here, because I know that East Hampton does get into us. What's your favorite ice cream? Let's let's cut all the bullshit. What's your favorite ice cream out here? (laughs) My favorite ice cream doesn't exist anymore. It was A and B Snowflake. A and B Snowflake is so good. A and B Snowflake. Right? Yeah, Bostwick's now. I know. Yeah, me too. Everybody loved A and B Snowflake. I, I will drive out. I know we're not supposed to like promote anything on this show, but I would drive out to Montauk for John's. Obviously, I, I have a lot of history in Bridgehampton, so Candy Kitchen. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's. Uh, but I, I really do think that the ice cream out here, uh, maybe uh, especially during the summer, is unique. But Snowflake was the. Sh- <laughs> I had the, you know, where the chocolate shell, like you dip it in the shell. That was, yeah. I still love that. Eric and I and our son Bing have actually just bought a little piece of land in Saugerties and they have like an ice cream place up there that's a, a little bit of a chain, but it's like a local chain. And they mm-hmm. have the, like the honest, good chocolate bonnet stuff where it, oh where it actually tastes like chocolate. It doesn't taste like, it's not about the texture, it's about the taste. Wow, we do love food, don't we? We do love food. We do love food. Well, I love food that makes me, I mean, look, I mean, I will go to, I will eat at Fierro's every day of my life out there. Um, For me, the emotional memory of a place is is around meals and stuff. And so when you even mention what part of Santa Monica you live in, I immediately think of the restaurants and the the nights I have with friends around there. And so I think that's a big part of it, you know? Yeah, no, no, totally. It's the most beautiful place in the world, East Hampton. And I spent every summer of my life on Main Beach. Um, again, I'm going to bring this around back to some kind of dessert item or candy. Um, and at Main Beach, where at the little, you know, at the little place where you buy stuff, yeah, they used to have um, Lickamade Fun Dip, but oh then my- they also had those big taffy things. Oh my God, they were so. I love that stuff. You know, I'm, I love that stuff. Candy I necklaces. love that Remember stuff. candy necklaces there too? Oh my completely, completely. It's one of those places that really feel like home. The Greens Hill, and I know, Bridget, you know the hill that I'm talking about. The lawn. Yeah. Um, and Main Beach feel of like the deepest, when I dream about home, I dream about two places, 1380 Lexington Avenue or East Hampton, Long Island, the house there. Because you can't extricate your life from the, the, it sounds very dramatic, but you cannot extricate your life from where you were putting your feet. No, absolutely. And, And I can tell you, I mean, I moved back out here five years ago from Santa Monica and it was because uh, of that very thing is, is my yeah. sense of space in this world really exists out in the East End of Long Island more than anywhere. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can see that when Sasha graduates high school and if she wants to go to college, great, but I can totally see moving there and moving back there when she does oh, that. So, so we can have bacon and ice cream together. Bacon and ice cream. I think those are totally reasonable food groups and probably the best ones. In fact, maybe we could blend them together and make it bacon ice cream. My daughter 
did this most amazing food thing, which was ramen with sprinkles. And I was like, I salute you. <laughs> I'll take you to the emergency room, but I totally right. salute you for just right. bringing it. There's there there places in which you can get hypertension and diabetes at the same time. I know. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> Jenny Lumet, we have had such a blast talking with you. You're such a part of my my DNA, it feels like. Um, You're a part of my DNA. I mean, Bridgie. I know. I couldn't say your name. I said Bidzy, 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 because I couldn't say Bridget when I was an egg. Because, <laughs> Alex, you have no idea that Bridgie and I were like eggs together. We were. And and your, your, your family just are so close to my heart all the time. And I think about Sydney all the time and Gail and Pidey and Lena. I mean, we can go on and on because we have the- On and on. And I think about Tony and Jen. My parents actually- like in their in like legal documents, we're gonna give me to Tony and Jen if anything happened to them. Like that's how intense Alex the relationship is. Well, we'll we're gonna stay in touch now that we've had this little get together. Totally. And um, Alec is gonna take us out. Jenny, it's been just a pleasure talking to you. Happy Independence Day, a day late. You are one of the most independent women I know. Blazing a trail, blazing a trail with Clarice and your own spirit. And just thank you for being you. Thank you guys. And Alec, you want to take us out? Yeah, everybody. Thanks for listening. And, uh, you know, ha hope you have, uh, have had a good holiday weekend and are having a good week. You know, maybe during this time, reflect a little bit on what it really means to be free and what it really means to have a voice, have the courage to uh, listen and still participate. And, uh, you know, wear your mask, wash your hands, and Black Lives Matter. Remember that. Remember that in everything you do, whether you uh, act on it or, or just think about it. So uh, thank you and be well and stay well. Give me bacon. Childhood dream of bacon. I love bacon. Mm -hmm.